Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I want to talk to you today about the notion of family instruction, and I'm going to be in the book of 1 Timothy in the first chapter. And you can be turning there because that's where we're going to spend most of our time today. However, I'm actually going to start by reading something in the Proverbs. A couple of weeks ago, I preached on what I called logical salvation and talked about the if-thens that are in the book of Proverbs. And, you know, the Bible lays out in many places, if you will do this, then these good things are going to happen. Otherwise, bad things are going to happen. And that's found all through the Bible in a lot of places. And I read Proverbs chapter 2 as one of my texts there. And then I believe Brother Sonny hit this a little bit in his last sermon. But I I want to hit it again and set it before you. Because here's an example of what I'm calling family instruction. And it's all through the Bible. Now in your own natural families, you've experienced the instruction of a parent. Everybody's had a natural father. If things are normal, there are people who don't for various circumstances. But for the most part, you have a natural father and mother, and they instruct you in certain things. And we might all sit around and compare the relative merits of the instruction we got from our parents. And not all parents are great instructors. Not all of them give you the best advice in the world. But generally speaking, parents who are doing as they ought are going to be teaching you things that are going to be needful and helpful to you. And that all comes in the context of family instruction. If you listen to your father, you're going to avoid a lot of problems that he's already gone through or experienced or seen other people go through, or he's been smart enough to have heard the Word of God and have avoided these situations himself. And he's trying to pass that on to you so that if you'll listen to your father's instruction, you're going to avoid some of the pitfalls that are out there for Christian people in this world. And we kind of know that to be true. And we see this modeled in Proverbs chapter 2. This is again that if-then statement I brought before you. My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding, yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You see, there's instruction that you can have from a natural parent that will teach you. This is kind of the way of wisdom. These are the things you ought to know and you ought to experience in life. And this, this is speaking here uh, in this sense. This is literally a, a father to a son. But this, this relationship of father to son is modeled for us throughout the Bible. And is used time and again in a lot of different ways. I think you'll see this modeled in how... Uh, the Apostle Paul talks to his son, Timothy. Now you might say, well, Timothy was not his natural son. And we'll talk a little bit about that because you'll see these aspects of sonship. They're played out in different ways in the Bible. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we look at this lesson. There's a logical instruction that's going on here. And it's going from a father to a son. It's sort of, here's someone who knows wisdom and wants to impart it to someone who is sort of up and coming and maybe hasn't been exposed to all this wisdom and needs to know it in advance so that they can avoid a whole lot of problems in their lives. Um, Starting in chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior 
and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, in that second verse, you see two aspects of the father-son relationship. The first one is uh, his reference to Timothy as my own son. Now, Paul was not Timothy's natural father. He's not talking about a natural lineage here. And that tells you that there are aspects of sonship that are taught in the Bible that are not just based on genetics. There's something more going on in this relationship of sonship than just sheer genetics. And it's often used in a lot of different ways. In fact, I would say this. A lot of people have often pointed out the fact that we believe in the eternal sonship of Christ. There is a relationship that exists in the Godhead that is that of God the Father and God the Son. And it predates the incarnation of Christ. There's something about that relationship that exists in the Godhead. And so what we see in our world as the natural relationship of Father and Son... We might often be inclined to say, well, the Bible's speaking of father and son, and we see that in our world. Here's a natural father and his natural son, and that's the image. And then all these other things are, are sort of the, the metaphor or the, the, the symbolic aspect of it. But I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that this idea of Christ as the eternal son of God is such that it, it defines the relationship between father and son as something that transcends just the natural relationship here. And what we have in our natural relationship between a father and a son is actually kind of the image of this greater truth that preceded it. We know something more about the relationship within the Godhead as a result of our natural father and son relationships. But that relationship between God the Father and His Son is really the primary definition of the Father and Son relationship, though we may not always think about it that way. Now, he refers to Timothy as my own son in the faith. And this is speaking of his relationship to Timothy as it relates to matters of ministry. And we see this, you hear it talked about among our people a lot. Elder Phelan is my father in the ministry. He is not my natural father. But he is my father in the ministry. He is someone, uh, and, and I, I was sort of brought up in the ministry as his son under the auspices of his ministry. He's someone who's gone down these roads a lot longer than I have. I'm coming along. I'm learning things. I'm eventually ordained, and I'm, he is my father in that respect. He's giving me guidance, instruction, wisdom. He's saying, I've been down some of these roads before. These are things you need to listen to me on. You need to consider this and consider that. It's very, very valuable in the realm of ministry. In fact, many people, I think, kind of get off in, in some odd directions because they lack a father in the ministry, right? How many people do you know? I mean, it's pretty common in our in our lifetime and in our society today, you hear people talk about children growing up in single parent households, and maybe there's not a father around, you know. And here's a situation, it's generally regarded as there's something missing there, there's some form of instruction that would come from a father, some different perspective that's difficult for a mother to provide on her own, and this, uh, if this is removed and that father's not there, you say that, that might cause some problems. And I think we see that it does cause a lot of problems in our society. 
And in the same way, if you have someone in Christian ministry who doesn't really have a father in the ministry, and by a father I'm talking about a good father, someone who understands the doctrine, can clearly teach it, can help see some of the potholes that, uh, that, that a minister might step into, help this person avoid those potholes and those sorts of things, it's, it's going to be difficult for that son to come up in the world and be stable and not run into a lot of problems. So this is the sort of relationship he's talking about. He's talking about him as a son in the ministry. So I'm like someone that I said, you know, I'm taking you under my wings, as it, really as if you are my natural son. There's a similar sort of love there. It's not genetic, but it transcends that. I mean, we see this in our lives. Many of us have situations across our natural family and our spiritual family where we could say, I have more fellowship and connection with my brothers and sisters in Christ than I do some people who are members of my natural family, right? This is a very common thing, and it's, it's, uh, it's evidently there. And it's for our benefit, this idea of the family of God. The church is a family. And we need to regard one another as a family. Uh, a lot of us are related to one another, in either closely or distantly, and we have natural familial relationships, but we need to be thinking about the church as God's family. And we have a kinship in that that we should press into and we should regard this, this relationship we have as a familial relationship. And just as I have valued and profited greatly from uh, Elder Phelan's uh, role as my father in the ministry, uh, you will find similar familial relationships in your own church family. I would say this too. We almost always use this father. Uh, you hear ministers say, well, he was my father in the ministry. You know, I was talking to, to uh, Gary Harvey yesterday, and he was talking about Don Ferris, one of my fathers in the ministry. You know, hear, you'll hear these ministers say these sorts of things. And one of the things that dawned on me was you might think, well, I guess that's just something that the ministers have. You know, they have this father-son thing. That must be really great to have that kind of closeness, and, and only the ministers have this. I believe it's true that there is a unique aspect of a father and son in the ministry that occurs in the Lord's church. But I believe there are father and son relationships that can occur that have nothing to do with whether or not someone's in the ministry. You may find an older man in the church that you have a real connection with, a particular sort of connection, it has spiritual wisdom, and you can glean from him the advice and the recommendations and the experience as if he was a natural father. He can be a father to you in a ministerial sense as well. So I wouldn't want to just restrict this and say this is only something that happens in the realm of people who are God-called ministers. It, it's broader than that. And you can find uh, familial instruction uh, within the house of God, provided you're willing to look at it. So Timothy is his son in the ministry. And I think you see a, a tender and loving relationship between the two of them. And, and, and Paul's very concerned uh, for Timothy and trying to help him in many respects. And that's what these epistles are written for. Um, it's his own son in the faith. It's not a natural sonship. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's another father in view here, is there not? So we've already got the Timothy and Paul, father-son relationship between Paul and Timothy. But now he's talking about uh, God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the one I was talking about before that's really the ultimate image of father and son. 
uh, in perfection. Let's go on to verse 3. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So he's saying, look, I left you here at Ephesus. You're working in the church at Ephesus here. And the purpose here was doctrinal. Now, many churches in America today are, are taking a position that says, we don't get into doctrine. You know, I've heard, I've literally heard ministers, Christian ministers say to me, you know, doctrine is divisive. Well, yeah, it is. Because if you're going to believe something and stand for something, you're going to divide yourself from some wishy-washy form of Christianity that's not going to take a position on a bunch of things. You're going to have to take a position on some things. There are some just core fundamental precepts of the faith, non-negotiable aspects of what we believe. The virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the literal creation of this universe by God, these are things that are clearly taught in the Bible, and they are doctrine. That's what we believe. Paul thought doctrine was important. He's talking about other doctrine. Don't teach any other doctrine. He's talking about the faith once delivered to the saints, and he's making a doctrinal position. That means that Christians who are out in the world today who are saying, we're not going to really get into doctrine. We just want to bring people together. We want to have an experience. We want to make everybody feel good, but we're not going to talk about doctrine. They have departed from what Paul taught in the Bible. Paul thought doctrine was important, and it was important that you teach no other doctrine. It's not like, well, every year, well, it's a new group of people. These kids today, they've got iPhones and iPads, and they've got social media and all this stuff. We've got to come up with a whole new scheme, and all our doctrines got to change because the old paths just will not appeal to children. Well, you know what? That may be true, by the way. <laughs> you know? But if we're going to have this play this game, we're going to say, well, our doctrine is going to change based on what the audience wants. What that's called is marketing. That's marketing. We're going to test the audience, and we're going to determine what they want, and then we're going to build a Christianity that conforms to what they said they want. Give them what they want. That is, the customer is always right. Right? Christianity doesn't work that way. If it's working as Paul intended, as the apostles intended, it's almost more like this. The customer's almost always wrong. Okay? And you're coming here not because you think, well, I got it all right and I'm trying to find the church that conforms to my perfection. <laughs> you should be approaching the Lord's house as someone who says, I got a lot of problems and a lot of issues. I got a lot to learn. I want to be a disciple. A disciple is a learner. I want to be under the discipline of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to hear His words. I want to conform my life to what He says. Amen. Right? I'm coming in here, and my mom, when I was a kid, we used to make Jello. I love Jello, which I think is just absolutely disgusting now. I think it's one of the worst desserts on planet Earth. I really do. But as a kid, I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was cool. You could look through it, and you could play with it. Wonderful. But she would pour that Jello into a, a big thing, and it would take on the shape of its container. If she poured it into a square thing, it would come out in squares. If you poured it into a bowl, it'd be like a half circle when it came out. 
God's people need to come into the house of God kind of like Jello. You need to form yourself to the shape of your container. And that container is the doctrines of the truth of the Word of God. You ought to come in here willing to change your shape and conform to what you find in the Lord's house. Right? If you're coming in here just as hard as a stone and you think, well, I've got to just, the whole thing's got to shape itself around me. You have an overly exalted view of self. And you have downgraded the importance of how doctrine needs to shape your worldview. We need to be shapeable, formable, and teachable in the house of God. And to do that, we have got to have a proper view of doctrine. One of the biggest crimes against the sheep that's going on out there in the world is taking place among churches who are saying that, you know, doctrine's just not that important. And I'll, I'll tell you this. It, it is true. From a, I work in marketing. It is true that if you'll just poll your audience and figure out what they want and then serve up what they want, you will have better numerical success. It's undeniably true. Um, you know, Rick Warren wrote The Purpose Driven Church, and then he did The Purpose Driven Life. And he's been a highly influential Christian minister in the broader world of Christendom. But his entire approach in The Purpose Driven Church was to say, here's how you do it. First of all, never mind this teach no other doctrine business. Let's set that aside. You're going to go into a community and you're going to start polling them. We're going to go out in the community and we're going to start asking questions. Well, do you like, uh, do you like sitting in a pew? Okay. Or would you rather have a theater-style seat? Oh, theater-style seat. Okay. You want it to be hard plastic or do you want something soft? Okay. You want a cup holder? And would you like to be able to bring a beverage in and, and maybe a big poppy seed muffin while you're listening to church? And, and it, I mean, this sounds silly. Some of y'all are laughing out there. But... This is literally what happened. If you read Purpose Driven Church, he'll tell you this is what we did. We went out there and we went into this community and said, what is it that you want? Tell us what you want. And then they dropped back and said, let's design a church that gives them what they want. Enormously successful, right? Because it's marketing. It just appeals to what people already want. But the purpose of the church is not to give you what you already want. Amen. It's to give you what you need from the Word of God, and that comes from preaching no other doctrine. And what it's going to do is it's going to rub up against your person from time to time. How many times have I come in here and, and preached, and when I'm leaving, I'll have somebody like Thomas Burnett will say, you ain't stepping all over my toes today. That's what church has got to do. It's got to step on your toes some. Unless you're coming in here and saying, well, I'm just perfect. It's going to step on your toes and it's going to make you think, you know, I'm not doing this right. I need to change some things. I've got to, I've got to rededicate myself to being a better Christian in some respects. It's going to do that to you. Because we are by nature very much against this idea of sound doctrine. We need to hear it over and over again. So while you might find numerical success, and the world may raise you up and say, look at this great ministry that's going on here. Because you have used the tools of mass marketing 
to bring in an enormous audience. That is not the business of the Lord's New Testament church. And if we could have a thousand people in this church uh, who had that mindset, I wouldn't choose it over what we have today. I absolutely would not. We need people who are coming in here saying, the Word of God is true. There is a doctrine that was handed. It was once delivered to the saints, and we are trying to uphold it, and we're trying to conform our lives to it. I'm coming in here like Jello, and I'm coming out in a little bit different shape than I came in here as. Because I'm allowing the shaping influence of the Word of God to have its effect on my life. And that's what we're supposed to do. And that's what Paul clearly taught Timothy the church should be. If Paul thought otherwise, he would say, well, you know, I mean, this don't, he wouldn't say don't teach, teach no other doctrine. He wouldn't say that. He'd be like, well, teach whatever doctrine's going to work. You know, you got to get them in here. You know, one of the things that happens is if you don't believe salvation is an accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can start justifying all sorts of crazy techniques to bring people into the church because you say things like this, hey, if we don't get them in here, they're all going to go to hell. Jesus Christ didn't get it done. I know He shed His blood for everybody, but He didn't save anybody. The only people getting saved are people who come into our ministry and do our thing, right? So if you start off in the realm of saying, we got to do something to get people eternally saved, Jesus Christ didn't get the job done, well, then you could say, well, let's, I'll tell you what, let's, this Sunday, why don't we say, everybody that shows up will give you $10 when you come through the door. Well, wouldn't it be better to give them $10 and hope that maybe one of them might go to heaven instead of going to hell? You see how once you step away from the idea that Jesus Christ actually saved His people from their sins, you step into the realm of being able to justify a thousand bizarre practices because you think, I'm out there trying to eternally save people. Teach no other doctrine. Teach that Jesus Christ got the job done and stick with that. Teach the doctrine that says this is how you ought to live. And teach it consistently. And you may only have a church that's got 50 to 100 members in it. But if they're doing as they ought, they'll be following the teaching of the Lord's New Testament church. may not be regarded in the community as, well, that's just a church of no regard. They may think this is not a big church. There's a huge church over there. This is a church that's of no importance whatsoever. But our importance doesn't come from the external eyes of the community. It comes from the place that Paul's uh, talking about, the place of teaching no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. Now, we can get very wrapped up in talking about all kinds of aspects of, say, Baptist history. You can go back and spend all this time reading about Baptist history, and you find Baptists that did this and Baptists that did that. And I'm someone who likes history. I think that stuff is interesting. But that's not really what we're supposed to be pouring into. Maybe there's times when when we make reference to it here and there. In fact, last Sunday I preached and I gave you a little bit of a history of the Tulip Doctrine and the Remonstrance and the Protestants, just to give you some orientation to where we sit in a historical perspective. But that stuff is not the no other doctrine aspect that Paul's talking about here, right? And you can get 
headed down a path of teaching all sorts of things that are historical and fables and exploring all kinds of wild theories about this thing or that thing. And you get way off the path of actually talking about the doctrine of the church. And so we have to be careful about that. And I think Paul in this instance to Timothy is seeing that there was a tendency here for people to want to go in these directions. You know, Jewish people were really big on their genealogies. They wanted to go back and say, well, I, you know, I, this was my father, and this was that, and this is, he was this, and that. They were big on these sorts of things, and to, to such a degree that it would actually become a problem. I actually believe this is one of the reasons that, uh, you know, J- Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., and took a lot of that off the table, honestly, because all the records were destroyed. So nobody can really prove much of anything with respect to their Jewish heritage, not in the formal sense. Um, So these things can be an enormous distraction. And if you're someone who has an inclination to study them, you should at least put a reminder, stick a pin in that in your mind and say, this is not, I, I may understand a lot about Baptist history, but this is not the doctrine of the church. By the way, if you study Baptist history, you're going to find some variances hither and yon where they did this, they did that a little wrong, they got off on this. You're going to find that all through the Bible. And some people try to present a, a, an image of Baptist history or primitive Baptist history that make us look purer than Caesar's wife. Like we've never had any errors. We've just been, uh, you know, non-gospel means, foot washing, always upholding all of the tulip doctrine in just the correct way from the times of Jesus Christ. But I can tell you on Bible authority, that is not true. It's not true. I can show you examples in history where it's not true. And I can can point out in the Bible itself that the church at Galatia was teaching salvation by works. Now that was an old Baptist church. They're just as wrong as they could be on it. Why someone would say that in the New Testament era, these churches founded by Paul were getting off into error but somehow beyond that for the next 1,800 years or 2,000 years, well, we didn't have any errors in then. It was just a straight line and the old Baptist always got it right. That's not true. That's not true. So these things can be quite a distraction. And a lot of people get kind of jump the tracks because they go back and say, well, I see somebody here who was a prominent old Baptist. I'm reading Baptist history and they believe something that my church doesn't really believe anymore. Well, so what? I see people in the Galatian epistle who believe things that weren't true, and they're being corrected for it. All that matters is that we teach no other doctrine, and we get the doctrine from the Bible, not from Gilbert B.B. or whoever else you might pick out of Old Baptist history. Okay? So these are important things to know. We're going to teach no other doctrine, and doctrine is important. We don't need to be giving heed to fables and endless genealogies, uh, which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do. Now the end of the commandment is charity. He's talking about the the commandment of this is how you ought to teach, the teaching of no other doctrine, um, following the apostles' doctrine. There's an end to this. It doesn't mean this is when it ends. This is its purpose. There's a purpose to teaching you this. And its purpose is love. Charity. The word charity there is often translated love elsewhere. Um, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and out of a good conscience and out of faith unfeigned. Interesting to note here, this charity, which is love in action, like 
love not just in an affirmation of something, but actually showing that you love one another and how you behave and how you act. And it is of faith unfeigned. It is not uh, a charity so that you can produce some faith. This is a love and a charity that exists within the child of God, right? The purpose here is to cultivate your love for one another. Starting to feel like a family. You see what I'm saying? I mentioned before that we're in a family here as a church family. And the purpose of this and the end of it, of this commandment, is charity towards one another. You know, a good conscience and a faith unfeigned. You know, um, I'm going to look at uh, Galatians 5. Flip back a couple of pages here. And you'll find this statement. Galatians 5 and chapter 1 says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Now he's talking to a group of people who at that time were saying, you know, we think you've got to be circumcised. This grace is great, but you also need to be circumcised to be eternally saved. And his, the context of his remarks here are, if you think that circumcision is a requirement for eternal salvation, you have not understood the gospel. That's what he's saying. He's saying Christ will profit you nothing. He's not saying you're going to hell. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this teaching of the gospel of grace, the teaching of the gospel of Christ has not profited you. Because if you're still sitting there saying, yeah, I heard the gospel and the gospel said I need to get circumcised and then I can go to heaven. You have not heard the gospel. You may have heard a man declare it. You may have heard a man say it. But you have not understood the proper gospel, which is that Jesus Christ got the job done. He saved his people from their sins based on what he did entirely and has nothing to do with what you do right that's the sense in which he's saying if you go out and get circumcised because you think it's how you're going to get eternally saved christ will profit you nothing he's saying you haven't understood the message here the message is that christ is our savior not anything that we do right but then he says this for for we through the spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. So you've got to have this love in place for faith to work. You see what I'm saying? Faith, you might say, well, I believe these things, I've heard these truths, um, and I intellectually have embraced these great truths of the faith. But apart from love, it has no capacity to work itself out in your life, working towards others. It works out through love, right? You prove what you believe. The faith you have is proven and made manifest before others to the extent that you are working it out in your loving relationships with those people and how you care for them. See that? So that's important to know. The end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Now, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. Now, here you go. You've got some people who are preaching, in this sense, another doctrine. Right? They've swerved away from this truth about it being about charity for your brethren in the faith. 
and they're going to teach something different. And what is the thing that gets taught as often as not when people jump the rails? Well, there's a lot of different things that could be offered up, but one of the most common things is some form of law. The example I just gave to you about circumcision is one form of it, right? Let's just, let's just add one law, okay? Grace is great. Jesus Christ saves by grace. But can we add, can't we at least add one law in here? Let's add the law of circumcision. The moment you do that, you've destroyed grace, right? you completely destroyed grace the moment you add a law. And here's what we see. For some... Uh, for which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. So what they're going to teach here is vanity. It's nonsense, but it's very common. It's very popular. Vain jangling. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. So they're going to teach law, and they're teaching it as a means of eternal salvation... In so doing, they're saying, Christ did not get the job done. You've still got to do some stuff. Jesus should not have said, it is finished. He should have said, it is started. Or, hope you can finish it. Right? Jesus said, it is finished. And when you come in and start teaching the law, as they're talking about here, law as a means of obtaining eternal salvation, you are denying it is finished. You're saying there's still more that you must do in order to complete the work. And this is why he says um, that uh, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. They don't know what they're talking about. They literally don't know what they're talking about. The danger of this is that on some level, a child of God who's regenerate has some desire to want to please God. And they may be... Well, they are, unless they've had gospel instruction. They're ignorant of really what they need to do to please God. So if they come in and are cowed down by some religious officiator who says, well, I've, been, I've studied all these things, ancient languages. I'm, I've got a Ph.D. I'm Dr. So-and-so, and I'm going to tell you this. And I'm telling you that you need to be circumcised, and you need to keep the Ten Commandments, and then Jesus will save you. Well, lots of God's people in their ignorance are completely cowed down by that. They're intimidated by it. They say, well, how am I to question this religious officiator? They, everybody seems to be agreeing with what they say. They've got this enormous church. There's all these people listening to them. Surely all these people can't be wrong. Surely all the people traveling this broad road can't be headed towards destruction and a lack of understanding of the truth. Surely that can't be the case. But it is often the case, and the very people who are teaching this thing, this verse here, if I were to restate it in the, uh, you know, this is the KJV, if I were to restate it in the DSV, it would be, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't have the foggiest notion of what they're talking about. Because when you mix in law as a Savior, you've eliminated grace. And you have assaulted the de- declaration of Jesus Christ that said it is finished. Because you're saying it's not. And it's just as simple as that. Now, that is speaking of the law as a Savior. The law is not your Savior. Christ is your Savior. And so we shouldn't teach the law as Savior. That would be some other doctrine. But what do we do with the law then? 
we say, well, just throw the law out when it has no bearing on us whatsoever. It, 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 you just ignore the law completely. Paul get, kind of gets into that matter in verse 8. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. In other words, the law has its place, but its place is not as your eternal Savior. Let's don't do that. Let's take it out of that realm. Now what are we going to do with it? What purpose does the law serve? Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. What the law does is it describes, if you will, when someone is out of bounds, right? You can think of the law, if the kingdom of God was a property, you might think of the law as the survey of that property. Here's the boundaries of that property, right? <clears throat> you step outside the boundary of that property, you step outside the bounds of the law, you're not acting as you ought as a citizen of the kingdom, right? The law tells you that. Hey, look at me, I'm outside the boundaries here. I need to... I need to get back. I need to repent and get back in the kingdom and be as I ought to be, right? The law may define the boundaries of the kingdom, but it doesn't define how you became a citizen of the kingdom. You see that? You, you could be a citizen of the kingdom and step outside the boundaries, right? What does the law say to you then? It says, hey man, you're out of bounds. You need to turn around and get back where you ought to be. If you're in the kingdom and you know where the boundaries are, the boundaries are really not going to have much effect on you if you're living as you ought within the kingdom. You're not going to be trying to step over the boundaries or leaning up against the fence or anything. You're going to stay within the kingdom. Everything's fine. It's not going to have that much effect on you. See what I'm saying? But it does mark the edge of the property. It tells you something about the conduct you should have within the kingdom of God, but it does not determine your citizenship. See what I'm saying? <clears throat> your citizenship is the result of being born of the Spirit of God. It's a result of sovereign election before the foundation of the world. That's how you became a citizen of the kingdom. You didn't become a citizen of the kingdom because you crossed the border. We've got that problem going on in the country right now. People crossing the southern border. They're not citizens when they cross the border, right? Because that, that's not how you, you don't get citizenship by saying, well, I'm going to I'm going to cross over the border now. I'm an American citizen. That, it doesn't work that way. Neither could a carnal man who's standing outside the visible kingdom of God step across the boundary and say, I'm going to reform my life morally. I'm going to start living as I'm going to start you know, running around and drinking and doing all this stuff. I'm going to do some moral reformation. I'm going to step within the bounds of the law. That doesn't, he's still not a member of the kingdom because that's not how you get citizenship within the kingdom. It merely marks the boundaries of proper behavior on the property, Right? You've got to be born into the kingdom. It is a heritage that comes from the new birth and traces all the way back to election. So, the law should have no bearing on people if they are functioning as they ought within the kingdom. You mentioned some more people here in verse 10. For whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind... These are very evidently preached against in the Word of God. It doesn't require any explanation to reasonable adult people. But this is very much 
regarded as hate speech by much of the world today, but it's plainly taught in the Word of God. It's just there. We have to declare it. That's what it is. Whether it's regarded as hate speech, and by the way, it's not hate speech, it's the truth. And there's nothing more loving than in humility teaching the truth to God's people because they need to know it. What would be unloving is to say, you know what, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm just going to ignore it. It's easy to do. Nobody wants to stir up trouble. But what that is, is just a very minute version of what Rick Warren was doing. I'm just going to go out and poll the audience and see what their preferences are. And if they have a preference in that regard and they don't want that messed with, well, we'll just make a church that doesn't make that an issue. And then we can have them in. You can have them in, you can increase your numbers. You just can't have the truth and you can't have sound doctrine. So you've departed from the faith when you do that. So that's why we have to do it. So we have to preach these things for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. It's not just those very gross and particular sins. It's a whole host of sins. Verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now some people say, that that sounds like you, you Christian people are just coming down so hard on all these people who have all these other issues. Horribly judgmental, why would you be that? Why would you say that about other people? That's a common objection that gets raised. But look at Paul's attitude about himself. This is the self-reflection of a child of God who's in the ministry, had a very special calling, an apostolic ministry. But look at his testimony of himself. It is not a testimony of, I've always been just absolutely perfect, and all you people are just pathetic, and you're just horrible sinners. Paul says, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. You see, Paul, there was a time in Paul's life when he was like, look, (laughs) I was right there with you. I may not have exhibited this full list of sins, but I had a very healthy list of my own. And some of them were unbelievably bad. Putting Christian brothers and sisters to death for what they believe. And thinking that I'm doing God's service while I'm doing it. I have to think that was something that dogged Paul throughout his life. That this thought would come up from time to time. That he would be preaching to a congregation at times be looking out there and say, that's the mother of someone I put to death. It would be almost impossible for Paul not to have entertained the thought from time to time. And I think it inspires some of his language here. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. Verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying. And what I'm going to tell you here is the truth. I'm telling you the truth, so listen to me. And it's worthy of all acceptation. Don't dispute it. Don't argue with me on this, but I'm going to lay it out here for you. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners 
of whom I am chief. Paul made this horrible list of people over here who the law is useful for. It points out their horrible behavior. The law clearly marks the boundaries and shows people who are outside the boundary of proper behavior in the kingdom. But then he comes back and says, I was just like them. He says, who were by wrath, by nature children of wrath, even as others. He's talking about God's people here. Look over in Titus chapter 3, just a couple pages over. Titus chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers but gentle, <coughs> showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. He says we ourselves. He's including himself in the group of people who <laughs> conform to that description. See what I'm saying? Paul's saying I was just as much mixed up in it as anybody else. By the way, this verse, uh, well, I'll show you this. Look at verse 4. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. After all that. See that? Maybe you've heard at times, you may have heard some preachers say, well, Paul was born again from the womb. Well, how could that be? If these things happen, and then after that, something else happened. You see what I'm saying? I'm going to prove that to you. After that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Paul said that occurred after he had done a bunch of this stuff. That tells you right there, Paul was not born again from the womb. Okay? I don't know exactly when Paul was born again, by the way. But I know it wasn't from the womb from this basis. Because he says his regeneration occurred after he had done these sorts of things. You see that? Christianity does not present an us and them view of the world in this sense. It doesn't say that we are by nature, Christian people, Christian disciples are by nature better than people around us who are exhibiting all sorts of horrible sinful behavior. Even as regenerate Christians, we struggle with sin and have our own issues and sorts of things. We recognize that. But as a proper disciple, you're going to work on that. You're going to keep coming back and trying to uh, mortify sin and the things that Paul teaches us in that. But we are by nature children of wrath even as others. We have the exact same sorts of issues. But those who are born again who have joined the Lord's kingdom are supposed to be marching to Zion together. We're supposed to be trying to conform our lives to what we find here and putting away, um, you know, these sorts of evil things. Disobedience, deception, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, being hateful and hating one another. You see, in a family, you, you can't be harboring hate for one another. You got to work together as a family. And Paul, Paul saw himself as a chief of sinners. He understood something about sin and depravity because he had been a practitioner of these things. That's the way all of God's people should be. We might find that uh, 
someone's behavior is objectionable to us in the form of any of these things that were described that I've just read. However, we should recognize that we were practitioners of sin in an unregenerate state at some point in the past, and that we've been delivered from it by the grace of God. You've got to have grace towards others in this respect, and that's something that has to be properly balanced. You can't just say, well, it doesn't matter. You can let anybody who is participating in any abject form of sin, just let them in to the church. That's unacceptable. You have to have a testimony for what the truth is. But you can also have compassion for the reality that, but by the grace of God, I'd be doing exactly the same thing. And we've got to maintain, maintain that thought. Paul says it this way, How be it for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on Him to everlasting life. Those who have heard the gospel and want to become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, they've been out there in the world, they've had their issues and problems, and they can come into the church, start following the Lord instead of following the precepts of the world. God's a merciful God, and He still provides the mercy necessary to create disciples in this world. And by the way, as you look around this room and see your brothers and sisters in Christ, that's what you're looking at. You're looking at objects of mercy. <coughs> We should keep that in mind. By the way, it should, be, it should provide hope for anyone who thinks about members of their family or members of their community, people they know at work, people who are wrapped up in sin. People can be so wrapped up in those things that we can begin to think, well, I guess there's just not any hope for that person. I cannot imagine how that person's ever going to turn their life around. They are so deeply rooted in whatever's going on here that it's just, just not ever going to happen. Well, what if you'd have said that about Paul? It's hard to really even imagine. If you thought about maybe the, the, a gross example in our time would be, here's somebody of another religion that is going out in some other part of the world, and when they find Christian people, they're chopping their heads off. Now, you might be inclined to say, well, I just don't see how there's any hope for that person. Well, that's basically Paul, okay? Paul was putting people to death, your brothers and sisters in Christ, to death. God turned his life around. So, we might lack hope in being able to convert someone who seems like they're that far gone off in the path of the world and... Uh, hostility towards the Lord. But we're talking about the God who created this universe out of nothing. We're talking about a God who has resurrection power, can bring forth a child from a virgin. We're talking about a God who's going to destroy this earth someday by His mighty power, who upholds the universe by the word of His power. There's nothing in this that is beyond the capacity of God to turn around. And I think Paul is a brilliant example of that. And I think Paul gloried in that truth. I'm certain that while he had pangs of guilt from time to time about, well, I can't believe, I just feel terrible about these things I did, he must have also, as he's explaining here, thought, what a merciful God. 
to do that for someone such as me. <clears throat> Let's see if we can get through the rest of this. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> this, I char- this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy. There he is, his son again. According to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. Sometimes I've said, I think from the pulpit, things like, well, you know, Christian life is a battle. <laughs> I'd like to amend that statement. You know, a war has a lot of battles. And the Christian life really is a warfare. When I say it's a, it's a battle, I'm kind of doing it a disservice. It's really a warfare. And a war is going to have many battles and many struggles over the course of a long period of time. You're going to go from battle to battle to battle. And it's going to take time and patience and um, trust in the Lord to get us through all that. And Paul is trying to encourage Timothy so that he can be prepared for a good warfare. Knowing what he's up against. Know the enemy. Know what you're up against. And know that it's a warfare. You're going to have to stay on your post. How do we do that? Holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Now you can have faith, you can make shipwreck of it. You ever thought about that? It's a frightening thought, right? You can believe, you can have God-given faith and then choose to not live in accordance with it and send your life into absolute ruin. And faith working by love is going to help you help prevent that sort of disaster in your life. And we've got examples that we'll look a little more into here, but I'm coming up on time, so I don't want to dive into that. Holding faith in a good conscience, which some have put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Well, there's some examples of people teaching some other doctrine that crops up. And we'll hear a little bit more about that further in this epistle. But I'm going to close there. I think that's about as far as we need to go. Uh, that is the first chapter of 1 Timothy. Hopefully in that what you're seeing is there's a conversation going on between Paul, who is a father to Timothy, his son in the ministry. There's a familial conversation. It's dealing with truths that are out there in the world. And it's trying to root him on ideas like the core doctrine of the Christian faith. And he's trying to teach Timothy, this is important. It's more important than probably any of us are naturally inclined to believe. And that's why we have to be constantly reaffirmed in this. It's far more important than the broader world of Christian, Christendom today is making it out to be. Because they're recognizing that if you say, we're going to step away from doctrine and we're going to focus more on marketing, we can get a lot bigger crowd in here. We can have a lot more money. We can have a lot more stuff going on that's going to appeal and have a big influence in society of the sort that they want to have. The problem in that is that you're stepping away from the faith once delivered to the saints. The doctrine is important. Paul taught it was important. He... He's giving a, a first letter here to Timothy, and it's one of the first things he says to Timothy. Like, here's all these things you need to know. I'm sure he had a thousand things he would want to tell Timothy. First thing is, preach no other doctrine. 
This is at the heart of what we believe. I pray that's a blessing to you. I publish an open door to the church. If anyone would like to join by letter or baptism. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.